This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Sarah Patterson from the University of Michigan. I'm Leslie Hinkson from the League of Conservation Builders. I'm Mary Beth Stolt from the University of Northern Iowa. And today our guest is Jacqueline Wong from the University of South Carolina. Jacqueline is an expert on gender, marriage, work health, and aging in the life course. She is the author of Competing Desires, How Young Adult Couples Negotiate Moving for Career Opportunities in Gender and Society, and Toward a Theory of Gendered Projectivity and Linked Lives in the Transition to Adulthood in the Journal of Family Theory and Review. She is currently working on a book. Today, we're talking gender, work, and relationships. You're not going to want to miss this. Next up, what's really holding women back? Today, we're talking with Jacqueline Wong, an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina, about her work. So we'll start off by asking you uh, to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in general, Jacqueline. Sure. So as you said, I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of South Carolina. All of my work looks at how couples deal with all kinds of events across the life course. So I study young adult couples who are launching careers and transitioning into marriage and parenthood. I study older adult couples who are managing health declines um, and and shifts in retirement and things like that. So I'm, I'm interested in all of these couple level dynamics as they relate to broader patterns of gender inequality. Great. Thank you. So I figured we would start by talking about your gender and society piece, um, competing desires, how young adult couples negotiate moving for career opportunities. What really fascinates me about this article is that you're looking at moving decisions as a source of gender inequality in work, which I think is really interesting. So can you tell us more? Yeah, I got interested in this particular topic because after undergrad, I moved away the furthest I've ever moved from like my family and things like that to go to grad school. Um, and, you know, I felt like it was a really big deal. And I had other friends who were doing similar things where they had found jobs that they would have to move for. And I kind of noticed a pattern where some of my women friends were moving with their boyfriends without having lined up a job, without really knowing what the job market was like, wherever they're going, et cetera. And I just felt really worried about, you know, how is this going to go? Like, are you going to be okay? Um, What if the relationship doesn't work out? Like, and then you're stuck in, you know, wherever. And so I was just kind of curious about seeing that in contrast to talking to some of my men friends who were like, well, I'm going here to take this job and my girlfriend doesn't really want to come with me. So I broke up with her. (laughs) And I was just wondering, is, is this just my friends? Um, Is something else going on here? And so I really started thinking about moving for job opportunities as being this kind of turning point where gender inequality can be reproduced or contested. I don't know, (laughs) Um, because these questions about, you know, whose job is more important? How do we do things like this together? What does it mean for a relationship? What does it mean for a family? It's a point where all of these kind of questions get raised. And I think I was curious to know what do people say about it, but also what do people do about it? Um, And so I started this longitudinal study on how people make career and relocation decisions together. Yeah, I mean, reading this article brought up some very personal things for me um, as, as well. 
Yeah. When I went on the job market, I had to take the offer in this in the city that felt the most comfortable for my husband, even though as the primary breadwinner um, and the one who would be having to go go through the tenure process, the city that worked best for him, I said, that department works the worst for me mm-hmm. and things are not going to go very well. I'm telling you. And he was like, what are you talking about? You're going to be great. You're amazing. Right. Um, he does kind of talk like that. <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, I think very often when we think about why people make these decisions to move and why the woman chooses to be like, okay, fine, I'll follow the man. It's because the man has the more favorable job opportunity. And that is not always the case. And I think that one of the things that ends up happening is that women also then tend to have to make compromises around the mental health, like around the what's the the level of comfort of the partner uh, in terms of where they're moving to. And I think that that is I, I think that that's something that we often don't talk about, right, is is sort of the added emotional labor. And I think particularly if we look at women who are the primary breadwinners or who are like the, you know, especially if you have a two, like a two body problem, like in academia, who are the stars, and we see how that negotiation shakes out. I think sometimes we end up seeing that women even then still need to make compromises, right? That don't have to do with, well, you know, we have to go with wherever we make the most money. So, Well, you find that even in your article, right? It reminded me of this um, Max (laughs) who said, you know, who said he's normally, you know, egalitarian. It's generally a, it generally isn't a huge expectation for her to try to come to where he was, right? It's like she picked a lot um, because I'm here, but I think there's a good programs, right? Like justifying this idea that like, yeah, she had to come here for me, but like, it's fine. It's fine. And it's like, uh, is it fine? <laughs> is it fine, Jacqueline? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, I think that that, what was interesting for me doing this research is that that level of extra emotion work that women do on themselves and for their partners to make it okay that they're the superstars in their careers um, mm-hmm. is totally fascinating and something that I am still thinking through. Um, but I think that it ties back to ideas of masculinity and how masculinity is really implicated in attachment to paid labor. So it makes sense to me that if women are totally rocking it in their careers, but they're attached to these men, they still have to do a little bit of the like, oh, but you're, you're going to be fine too. Like, it's like, we're just going to pick the thing that is going to make you happier. Um, so I don't know what is going to, I don't know what is going to happen. Maybe I'll do another follow-up with, with these folks, but it does still seem to be the case that they're doing similar kinds of things five years out from the point that I interviewed them for that particular paper. Like some, there are some changes, but a lot of, a lot of it feels the same, um, especially around the idea of women doing more of the work to just maintain the relationship and make it feel like a space where like, oh, everyone's happy here. Mm-hmm. They're just doing more work for that. So uh, a comparative case, uh, which might not even be possible to do this work, but military families mm-hmm. where it's it's set 
You don't get to pick where you go. You move a lot. Whoever is not the star of the family, regardless if they're in the military or not, are expected to call up and move family and move family, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's so many different social supports, rules, et cetera, expectations in place. So there's so many things held constant that it might be an interesting space to to look at that. It might not even be possible, but that might be an interesting space. I think a lot of corporate expectations, if you're in a corporation for a while, if you uh, promotion often means a move, you know, that kind of thing. I think about, think about long-term uh, situations, but also the uniqueness of the academic couple is something I think to discuss as well, because there's there are unique expectations, just like in the military, just like in corporation. Uh, universities have unique expectations. Families who work in universities have unique expectations. So I think that it's a real uh, contribution this research is making. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Really nice. Um, I hadn't really considered whether or not I wanted to do more case studies, in particular occupations, because when I was trying to sample for my couples, they were coming out of you know policy school, law school, medical school, science degrees where you could go academic or into industry, things like that, trying to just get a little bit of a range. But I can see how having a really kind of controlled setting would be really interesting to see some of this gender stuff play out. I mean, I guess if I were to do it in a controlled setting, would gender come out even more than it did in the study that I had where I had more of a range and where it was a little bit more like, oh, well, you know, matches for medical residencies, like you can't pick, you just have to go. Yeah. (laughs) Like you can create a list uh, and rank institutions, but you don't, you don't really get to choose. Mm -hmm. So perhaps I would see similar things, um, maybe more strongly. I'm not sure. Yeah. It reminds me of Kathleen Gerson's work Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the the gender, uh, I forget the book title, but basically she asked people, you know, what would you want an egalitarian setup or sort of a traditional setup? And both men and women are like, yeah, egalitarian, right? And then you say, okay, that can't happen. What do you do next? You know, and men say like, oh, let's go back to the traditional setup where I go to work and she stays home. And women are like, I'm staying single, right? Like, (laughs) I think that that really, I mean, do you see that in your interviews, Jacqueline? So her book, um, The Unfinished Revolution, is a, a book that I cite all the time because I found it so fascinating that the ideal situation for everyone are these egalitarian partnerships. Um, but then if you can't have that, people's default or their fallback plans, their plan Bs um, are gendered. And I think the way I designed my study was to kind of get at if you can't have plan A, what is your real plan B? Um, And so I think that the couples that I call um, change desires are are definitely the people whose plan A was egalitarianism. It didn't work out. And so they defaulted to men's plan B, which is kind of this neo-traditional setup where, okay, fine, we're moving for his career and maybe the woman can get a job, but it's not in her field. It doesn't use her expertise. Like it doesn't pay very well and it has no upward mobility if they got a job at all, right? Because they there were cases where women just moved and were unemployed for a while. So it's interesting to see that the plan B for men was panning out in my study. And so like, what do people actually do? Well, they actually kind of default to men's plan B. Um, there, were, there were people who were able to um, achieve that plan A. And those are the people who maintain desires and 
those were the cases where men really leveraged their advantages in the workplace to ensure that women stayed attached to their careers so that both people Mm -hmm. um, could continue their careers. In terms of women going it alone, that is coming out for me a lot more now that I'm writing the book and now that I've done the five-year follow-up interviews. So even in the first round of interviews, I had two couples break up. So in that you know short two-year window that I was first conducting the study, I had a breakup and a divorce. And over the five-year follow-up period, I had, I think, another three or four couples break up or divorce. And in all of those cases, it was women who said, this is not the life that I envisioned for myself. This is not the way that it was supposed to be. Like, we can't do this. I'm, I'm going it alone. So I think that it's interesting to think that men's plan B gets enacted first, but then maybe women's plan B comes later because men's plan B is not what they want. I was going to ask, is that hard to find people five years later? Like, was that part of, like, did you have that issue at all? Or was it pretty easy to find people later? I'm always curious about the methodology on that. I I was very worried that I wouldn't be able to contact everybody after five years, but there were only two people who I couldn't get a follow-up interview from. So one person was just like, I'm not really interested in doing this anymore. So like, nope, you can just like take me out of the study. Um, And another person I was just not able to contact. So I I did my best to keep up with people's email addresses and things like that. But you know, you can change your email address and I was not able to contact them. I I do feel like maybe if I were to do another follow-up in the future, I might just have to innovate and think through other methods for doing this because this time around people with their jobs and with little kids and things like that, it was just hard to find a time where we could sit for two hours Mm -hmm. and kind of do this interview. So I, I played around with the idea of what if I just administer a survey and they can just do it on their own time and I can do that really frequently, right? Like I can just email it to them and they can send it back to me at their leisure but, you know, it also might just sit in the inbox and never get open. Yeah. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. I mean, another alternative is, especially if there are small children, is you can offer to go to the playground with them and help watch the kids while they run around and you can have a chat. So. Yeah, that's true. Um, they Because my study was focused on moving for career opportunities, everyone's moved to like a whole bunch of different places. So I don't know, maybe I'll win a, a huge grant and I will do it. I will do in-person follow-ups. <laughs> that would be my suggestion, huge grants. <laughs> okay, huge grant. That's great. Well, interesting with your couples when you first started, I think what was their average uh, length of relationship? I think it was around five years. So these were established relationships and the move really cut into that relationship. Yeah, that was something that was pretty surprising to me that the people that I ended up getting had such a wide range of relationship histories. So there were definitely people who were like, we dated each other for a year and then we got married. So now we've been married for six months and we've known each other for a total of two years. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) And then there are some people who were like, dude, we've been together for eight years. Like, I don't know, we'll get married eventually. We don't care. (laughs) Like we, we have been together for so long, it does not matter. But 
So the average relationship time, five years, you know, most of the time it would be like, oh, we dated each other for around two or three years. And now we've been married for a year or two. And those were the kinds of folks who ended up in my study. So sounds pretty committed. And these moves certainly changed the nature of some of these relationships, which feels really jarring, but also an interesting way for me to study how gender inequality gets produced over the life course. And can I ask you a question? So when you think about the couples who are like, okay, we're just breaking up, I'm wondering, like, aside from the job situation, was there was there like one partner who had more of, I don't know, like in those situations, those women who decided to leave, did they have more or less of like a support network where they moved to than the women who just, who, who were still staying with their partners uh, over that time? Because I think support networks sometimes, you know, like actually can either work to extract a woman from a bad situation or can work to say, you know what, we're going to help make this situation better or the best that it can possibly be. I didn't really get direct information on that because, well, first of all, I wasn't really anticipating people breaking up. I don't know what I was anticipating, <laughs> so I didn't think to, to ask about it. But then, you know, people would report like, oh, we're not together anymore. Are we still part of your study? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so if I'm thinking about the people who do end up breaking up, it's women who do feel very comfortable that they can be on their own. So there were certainly women in relationships that I was like, well, I don't really like this relationship. Like, I think it's kind of like, I don't think he's that good. Who, you know, would report things like we decided to do marital counseling or we decided to go to therapy together. Um, and I haven't thought very deeply or looked systematically at the data um, if there are differences in in the women who end up breaking up versus the women who stay but are unhappy, but I should do that because I think that 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 would pull up some interesting things. I'm I'm sure. Well, especially if you're doing research with older couples and not about breaking up or moving, you're talking about their medical situations, right? That's what you've said. So I think that we see a lot of sort of late divorces, and is that the you know is that kind of the result of some of the women in your study who are staying? I, I haven't gotten a chance to really link up those two areas of research, thinking about how couples deal with things in earlier stages of the life course versus mm -hmm. younger stages of the life course. And gray divorce isn't an area that I'm a super expert in, but I could be um, an expert in, in that area looking forward. That's a really interesting hypothesis um, because I think that my sense of the literature that does exist on gray divorce is truly like we don't have kids in the house anymore. We don't really have shared interest outside of the kids. So like, why are we doing this thing together anymore? Like maybe we should just get divorced. And in my understanding, many of these divorces are really like amiable. You know, it's like, yep, we're done with that part of our life. Cool. Like now we can go do other things. So I, I can, I can see that. I can see that. I don't know how I would test it, but I think you can think yeah. about it. Well, it might be that it might just be uh, decades of bitter. I mean, I don't know. You know, it could be either. It could be either. But you could see if if a relationship is consistently not okay and only one person is bearing the burden of that, how that plays out 
a couple decades later. You know, I don't know how you're going to, I don't know if anybody can get, again, I have these questions. I don't know if anybody can get at that, but, uh, cause I don't know if anybody would be willing, uh, or could talk about that, you know, in a way that they were even cognizant of, but, you know, we spend a lot of time in the literature and in life focusing on the marriage and the, well, mostly the wedding, but the marriage. And then, you know, we don't spend as much time with the, the separation of, and, you know, a couple of people have, but I think that we can always do more with that. I think, I think that's just as important figuring out why and, and, you know, so that it's not a dirty word and in some circles, not all, but yeah. I was actually going to ask a follow-up question thinking about sort of your question, Mary Beth, with like older adults and these sort of joint decisions. I wanted to talk more about your theory of gendered projectivity. Let me get that right this time. And um, yeah, so because one of the things that you talk about in the model, in the picture, um, in figure one, is you sort of have these, you know, shared um, projectivity, but also these coordinated behaviors and joint outcomes. So where do you sort of see you know, gender linking up with linked lives across the life course. I guess that's repetitive, but you know what I mean? (laughs) This paper is one of those papers that, you know, I feel like I started having an idea. I started writing it down and that idea is continuing to evolve. And, you know, that makes me feel excited as a scholar because I feel like, oh, I'm getting better at what I'm doing or something. And I think that I was thinking through gendered projectivity and linked lives through the lens of gender, because the way I'm thinking about things is we move through the life course, not by ourselves, but with other people. But how do I see myself in the future is kind of tied to and implicated with the other people that I'm attached to. And so gender kind of plays into this in the case of heterosexual couples, if men and women are envisioning non-complementary things for their futures that is built into kind of our gender system. So if we're thinking about things like these dual career couples where both men and women are expecting to work and want these professional lives, what are they going to do about the fact that gender structures career opportunities differently for men and women? Are men and women in a relationship going to project that similar idea into their future and try to tackle that by maybe investing more in her career because she's the one who has the uphill battle to face? Or are they going to say, well, you're going to hit that point in your career where you just have to stay home with the kid and there's nothing we can do about it? And does that shift them towards a pathway of heavily investing in his career so that they can be financially sound as a household. And so that's where I kind of started thinking about how gender might be playing into these linked lives, because we might just have really different ideas of what is possible for the future for men and women. And if my future is different from your future, how do we make that, how do we reconcile it so that we can be in the future together? Mm -hmm. And I also think, I mean, not to complicate your life even more, but, I mean, then you throw race into the picture, right? So, I mean, let's say, like, even if you had a same race couple, right, that's sort of the way the gender shows up, right? It's very different d- depending on race. But, I mean, think of how much even, how, how many more sort of like, you know, sort of like different diagrams you would have to draw if you then had like, like a mixed race couple, 
right? And it's like, and the different sort of iterations of what that would look like. I mean, I'd be, I mean, you'd have, like, it would take, like, this would be like a thousand page book you would have to write. It's funny that you talk about this because the project that I'm very excited to start once I finish writing this book, which has taken me a very long time, is I'm interested in trying to understand interracial relationships in older age because because of all the things that you said. Like, what does it mean for my partner to be situated in the social structures of gender and race so differently from me, who's situated in the structures of gender and race in in this location, um, because we are a unit. And hopefully, if we envision a future for ourselves together, we'll need to reconcile that we sit in different places in the social structure. So, you know, um, Loving v. Virginia was a court case in the Mm -hmm. 60s. So interracial marriage really hasn't been around for like, terribly long. So the interracial couples who are older, maybe they're more likely to be, you know, second or third marriages, or maybe they're especially robust um, because they lasted um, that long um, because there's research that indicates that interracial marriages are more likely to end in divorce. And I was just kind of thinking, we don't really know a ton about folks like this. So I would like to just start by getting a descriptive picture of who are these people? Um, how are they similar or different from couples that are of the same race? Is it possible for me that, to then kind of blow up this project and do qualitative work on what does it mean to envision a future together, given that you face X challenges as a person of this gender and race, um, and I face these challenges as a person of this gender and this race. So yeah, the model is very big and hard to think through, but I think it invites us to ask questions that are, I don't know, hopefully really interesting to answer. I think so. (laughs) Jacqueline, do you have anything else you want to add? A big takeaway for us? I think one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, just because I'm actively writing this book, is the idea that acting pragmatically seems to just reinforce the status quo and that it's difficult to think through building different kinds of futures when you're just trying to survive. So I'm I'm, I'm writing about the couples that change desires. Um, in the book, they, I call them the tending traditional couples because they didn't want to have this set up, but this is kind of what they fell into because they were just trying to make their lives work and they were just trying to be pragmatic about things. So we're going to go with his job because it pays more. Um, we're going to go with his job because mine is more flexible. I should be able to find something whenever we get there. But because the landscape of work is so gendered and unequal using these kind of pragmatic logics, which allows people to avoid saying, you know, I'm sexist (laughs) is not actually (laughs) um, producing outcomes that aren't sexist. So thinking through that a little bit more, and I think I would like to articulate that like a lot in my book, but we'll get there. Well, good luck. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Can't wait. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Jacqueline Wong. Special thanks as well to Joe Cohen for letting me take over the podcast today. We're on the web at sociocast.org annex, on Twitter at Soch Annex, and on Facebook at Annex Sociology Podcast. 
Our producer is Lizbeth Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie, Marybeth, and Jacqueline, thanks for listening. Thank you.